you know, I really didn't expect the reactions when I'm offering just a free trip to Egypt. Why does, why does that make people angry, right? I didn't expect people to get angry and hostile towards me for offering a free trip to Egypt, right? And there was just moments along the way where there was just so much hostility and hate that I was like, oh my God, this is really worrying, right? So they were there. Those moments were there. And then every now and then there would be that magic moment of connection. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. Are you concerned or frightened or pissed about the state of the world politic today? Have you given up hope that we can all just get along? And have you been to Egypt or thought about going or wouldn't now dare go? Well, in this episode, my guest is Tarek Munib, whose courageous new film, Free Trip to Egypt, has just come out and is playing in movie theaters across the country this month. Now, before we dive in with Tarek, I want to tell you something about me that you don't know. I have an adopted Egyptian brother. He lives in Nashville with my dad and my stepmom. I met him 20 years ago when I was fresh out of the military and traveling around the world desperately trying to find myself. And one of the many places that I found parts of myself, I suppose, was in the heart of Cairo, where I lived with Wael's family, that's his name, Wael, for three months in the summer just before September 11th, 2001. And what I experienced in Egypt changed my life forever. I had never before experienced such a culture of hospitality and welcoming. Yeah, there were things that bothered me about being in Egypt that felt oppressive culturally, like the military was oppressive to me. But more than that, I was left with an indelible imprint on my soul of the profound capacity that Egyptians have to be kind, loyal friends and companions and to be concerned and present with you, and to be loving. In fact, one of my favorite memories of my lifetime is when I actually was constipated in Egypt because they had been stuffing me so full of breads and meats and for months already, and I couldn't go to the bathroom. And everywhere I went, every time we went to visit with someone else in Wael's family, there'd be 20 Egyptians sitting around in a room talking about my bowels. I'll never forget it. They were all so concerned about my health while I was there. And of course, I won't mention the part when my bowels finally did release because I got dysentery from eating some Kentucky Fried Chicken coleslaw in Cairo. Well, I didn't stop going to the bathroom for probably six months. But that's another story for another time. In any case, back to our story. When 9-11 happened a few months after my time in Egypt... And I was three miles from the Pentagon when it was hit, attending a 9 a.m. talk in downtown Washington, D.C. by 
President Bill Clinton's Middle East envoy, Ambassador Dennis Ross. He was talking about the state of peace talks in the Middle East at 9 a.m. I was in a small room with a group of maybe 50 people talking about this because that was the direction of the study that I was going in when we were interrupted by news of the attacks. And I was devastated, of course. Yes, because of the attacks themselves, absolutely. But even more so, I was also devastated because of the hatred so nasty and violent that began to emerge even from a few people close to me towards the very Muslims that I had fallen in love with and who had fully embraced me as their own son just months earlier. And so when my friend John Rotz, who is the founder of the Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment, known as GATE, told me he was taking on marketing and promotion for a movie about bringing people from places in America where that same hatred and vitriol towards Muslims has been erupting these last few years, taking them to Egypt to live with Egyptian families, to essentially be swallowed up by the same love and welcoming that I experienced 20 years ago, I was over the moon. I was so excited about this project, and John allowed me to do a private screening in my home for some friends before it was released. And well, here we are today. By the time you hear this podcast, Tarek's film will have been shown in over 500 theaters across North America. And this is my conversation with Tarek, a profound exploration into culture, into the shared human experience across cultures, and and the hope and the wisdom and the futility in learning how to bridge the sometimes excruciating differences that divide people everywhere. And how getting along doesn't require, can't require, must not require, that we all think the same. Definitely stay tuned for Tarek's five key takeaways at the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Tarek Munib, welcome to Men This Way. It's an honor and a privilege to have you. Thank you for having me, Brian. The honor is mine. Yeah. So your film, Free Trip to Egypt, I'm so excited to talk about. There's just so much richness here. And, and you know, in the introduction, I've shared with our listeners essentially what the synopsis is about. But I just want to first ask you or tell you really, congratulations, man. I can't imagine, you know, I've written a book, but I, to make a film like what you did from the, the vision that you had at the beginning to now it's out, man. It's coming out in 500 plus theaters across the country, I think tomorrow. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, tomorrow's LA and then on Wednesday, Ongoing. June, June okay. 12th, just one day only, it's going to be shown across 500. That's right. And just for our listeners, and again, you're going to hear this a few times throughout our conversation, but the, the website is freetriptoegypt.com. Yes. If you want to check this film out. But I just want to say congratulations to you. How does it feel? Yeah, um, there was that uh, that moment of really fulfillment where it just uh, this deep peace and joy came over me. But it lasted about five minutes because then you move nah. to the next challenge, right? <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. I know that duration. But, but, but yeah. it was there. <laughs> so thank I'm glad you. it lasted five minutes. Yeah. I'm glad it lasted five. At least you got five minutes. A lot of times, you know, we men tend to get zero minutes because there's always something else, you know, or maybe a second or two. So, well, congratulations. What are some of the various reactions that you've been getting? Um, so at the end of last year in November, we, we did various pre-screenings in different cities. 
And that's what really set me on fire to really kind of spread the message of the film because I was really moved by the degree mm-hmm. in which people uh, engaged and how it moved them and how it created these conversations and connections. And this whole journey for me, it renewed my faith and hope in humanity. Mm. And to see that touch others was really moving. Mm-hmm. And we'll dive more into the actual film in the latter half of our conversation. I'd love to get started really by introducing our listeners to you and to your journey through life. And and I, I could start that by asking this question that I like to ask a lot of the men that I have on the show is to tell us about a significant event or experience in your early life that played a fundamental role in shaping you as a man. I think... Um For me, when I reflect on that question, it's more, there were more small moments that kind of dropped into my life, like very simple moments, but that I felt had profound impact Mm. when I look back at them. Mm -hmm. Like the first thing that comes up, which I think is a little bit odd, but that's what actually comes up was simply a moment with my grade five teacher who was a man who just said a kind word to me. And just encouraged me. Mm. One sentence, one moment, but it had such a profound impact somehow. It mm-hmm. kind of ripples this kindness that he showed was one of the little, it's like a source of a river far from the mountain, but it, uh, it had its impact. And I imagine from what you've shared about your experience growing up of essentially a first-generation Muslim-born child in Canada, in the east coast of Canada, Halifax, I mean, I've never been to Nova Scotia, but I've been to Canada and I've been to Egypt. And those culturally, they seem about, (laughs) in some way, at least on the surface, I mean, so I'm imagining, though, in any case, that in the context of what you were experiencing, uh, being different from a lot of the other kids and probably not being praised at 10 years old, getting a lot of encouragement. Those words from that, that elder man had incredible impact. Right. And maybe that's part of it is that he was like the counterpoint to a lot of what was happening in my life mm-hmm. um, back then, because in Halifax, I mean, beautiful, kind people, but as kids, differences are, are not welcome. Right? Anywhere in the world. Yeah, Yeah. right. I think that's normal. So I was really confronted with a lot of, um, yeah, uh, shame that I'm different, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to hide my religion, hide that I'm from Egypt. Um, People Mm -hmm. back then thought it was some weird, strange thing. So it wasn't a a pleasant thing. And my mom was a little bit darker than my father. So people didn't know what that meant. Darker skinned, you mean? Darker skinned, Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we had uh, one incident where uh, they spray painted my home with Paki on it, Mm. right? So as a child, that's pretty shocking. But what was kind of even adding to the dynamic was my father's reaction when we were driving out. My sister and I were like horrified to see this, you know, Mm. our house uh, spray painted. But then his reaction was, pack one? What's his pack one, right? He didn't, he didn't get it. Uh-huh. And then we're in the back seat trying to explain uh-huh. it's packy. And then he's like, but we're not Pakistan. Right. <laughs> right? So it was just this disconnect between generations and not a realization, an innocence on his part. So it, it was an interesting dynamic. It, it's so bizarre. You're being insulted, and but not correctly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what do you do with that? It's so confusing. <laughs> it's like I'm offended, but if you're going to offend me, get it right. 
exactly. Insult <laughs> me correctly. Insult me correctly. I mean, I guess, and for, uh, we could probably make a case that the vast majority of insults are factually or infactual in any case. Yeah. They're always based on stereotypes and, and, and ignorance and et cetera, et cetera. But still, Paki? No, we're Egyptian. Get it right. Right. Couldn't be more different. What was your relationship with your father like? Um, well, he's, I guess, uh, for a lot of immigrants and I think even Americans, like my father's generation was a generation um, of a classical man. You know, mm-hmm. you, the distance, the father was the caretaker. Mm-hmm. Um, the mother was the one responsible for the emotional well-being, but you know, so he would he would drive me to the hockey games. Uh, he would pick me up, stuff like that. But we didn't really have an emotional relationship together. Mm-hmm. It was quite the distant authority figure. Yeah, and your family, you're Muslim. Yes. Did your mom wear hijab? No, no, my mother never wore a hijab, and this was also a very difficult thing for me that. My mother's family, her father did his PhD in Paris, um, even though he lived in Egypt. And they were very active in the Egyptian Muslim community when they lived in Egypt. And they were all educated. They all had master's degrees and PhDs. And all the women in the family were, they didn't cover their hair and they were really integrated in society. So so this was my view of women in, in Islam and in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, so then to hear how they're suppressed in Islam, suppressed in Egypt, it was always a bit frustrating because mm-hmm. it wasn't my own personal experience. Right. Yeah, no, I know. So I went to Egypt when I was 26, right after I'd gotten out of the military. And so I had gotten out of the military, which felt like a very restrictive, it felt like it was an incredibly restrictive environment for me, sort of spiritually and just in my creative expression that's not encouraged or even allowed. Mm. And so I just went traveling for a few years after just to kind of get that out of my body and see the world and kind of find myself, you know, I'm in mid-20s and and I went to Egypt uh, after I'd been traveling for a few months to live with this family in Cairo. And I remember the the first two weeks for me were quite exotic and fascinating. This exotic land was so different than anything that I'd ever experienced before. I think up until then, the most exotic place I'd ever been was, you know, London, which is just kind of like a weird part of the United States (laughs) to me. (laughs) But now Egypt, man, that's another planet. But I was so, and we'll talk more about the experiences that I had because that that really fits well into the movie that you've made Mm -hmm. and the the Americans' experience that when they went there. But one of the things that I really struggled with was what felt to me like an oppressive kind of culture creatively again. Mm. And and I wonder, uh, well, just because things like, you know, at the time Mubarak was president, and all my friends weren't allowed to talk about Mubarak. You can't criticize the government. You, right. you know, like there were certain clothing I wasn't allowed to wear. Like I think I had an earring at the time, and I was growing my hair long. I just get out of the military, man. I'm trying to express myself. <laughs> and I felt that there was. I definitely felt sort of a pressure around. You know, I, I shouldn't wear shorts, for example. Certainly not in the countryside. And in Cairo, it was more acceptable. Anyway, I really struggled with that at the time. And. And also women and how I would go to cafes and see that the cafes were just, they were oceans of men with really no women around. And, you know, I definitely, I struggled. And I I look into my country here in the United States and we have our own biases and we have our own ways of of discriminating. And, but I'm I'm curious for you, 
did you live in Egypt at any time for an extended period of time? So we would spend the summers in Egypt. And then when I was 17, I lived there for six months um, studying Arabic. In Cairo? In Cairo. In Cairo. Cairo. I'm curious, before we we dive into that, why did your parents emigrate from Egypt to Canada? Um, I think it was opportunity. So my dad's a scientist, and then he had some opportunities. And with the revolution with Nasser, he didn't feel very safe in Mm. Egypt well. Mm-hmm. And then he was actually in the United States. And then the Vietnam War started. And then there was talk of maybe drafting even non-citizens that are residents. Mm. And just the talk of that, just he, was, he just moved to Canada immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that I will want to explore with you a little bit, Tarek, is because the experience that I had in Egypt although I, I struggled with what felt like some oppression, kind of creatively, personally speaking, I was blown away by the hospitality and the kindness and the warmth and the welcoming that I received everywhere mm. by Egyptians. And you said something earlier about like the people in Halifax also being very kind and very warm. And, and I think that, you know, that duality of, and I think our country in the United States, I think we're, there's this movement around the world towards, authoritarianism. People are scared for reasons they probably, we don't need to be that damn scared. Mm. But, you know, when we're in fear, we, we want stricter rules so we feel safe. You know, I'm curious, your experience then growing up in Canada and also, also the living in Egypt, like what were some of the, well, let's start with the similarities actually. What did you find very similar between Egyptian culture and let's say Western culture? I think, I, I think the, the shared humanity I mean, just human beings are really similar, mm-hmm. right? We all want our happiness. We, we're generally kind to others, yeah. to our inner circle. Um, when we're afraid of people, they become the enemy. Um, right. But in general, people are kind, helpful, and welcoming. So, I mean, that's what I felt in Canada, and that's what I felt in Egypt. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, you know, the, and the diversity, right? You have secular people in Canada, you have religious people in Canada, you, you know, right. it's the same in Egypt. So, so I didn't feel, I felt all the types of people you find in Canada, you'll find in Egypt and yeah. vice versa, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was actually surprised even when I went to Egypt, because, you know, living in, I guess living in any country, you tend to see other countries, if you haven't been exposed to them as kind of a monoculture, they're all the same. Right. And... I mean, you know, Canada, the United States, oh my God, what a diverse citizenry we have. When I went to Egypt, I was really shocked to see that there was a diversity in the culture there as well to include discrimination where certain elements of the society would discriminate against certain others based on skin color or like the upper Egyptians thought kind of lower of the lower Egyptians and same in this country, you know, you have certain groups that think lower of others. It's like, again, shared humanity. But I'll tell you the one thing that really struck me most was the first night I got to Egypt. So I was living with this family. I was 26 and I was scooped up at the airport. I was staying in the home of a man who worked for Egypt airlines. He was a manager in Egypt airlines. So he, he had me escorted from the plane to basically to his home, essentially. And then that night, I'm exhausted. I've just flown in from Europe and I'm just so tired. But all of a sudden, 20 Egyptian, you know, 25 year olds show up at the door 
and they're going to take me, they're taking me out on the town. Right. You know how, you know how this goes. <laughs> so they took me to a felucca, went to a felucca on the Nile and I'm on the, this felucca in the Nile, little boat on the Nile with literally probably 20 young men who are all my age. The thing that struck me most was they were so funny. Right. They were ridiculous in their practical jokes. They loved that they pulled one of the all-time most unforgettable practical jokes on me that made me want to throw them all overboard. But it was the funniest thing that almost had ever happened to me. Where they they kind of there was this big guy named Yemen on the boat who would become one of my best friends there. Okay. And one of the other guys had told me, look, you know, go ask Yemen. You know, Yemen just lost his brother to a motorcycle accident. And, uh, you know, he's really sensitive about it. You know, Yemen was standing up on the front of the boat, kind of looking out over the water. And I was just trying to make friends and connect. And, <laughs> and they said, you should really go ask Yemen about it. He'd probably really like to talk about it. So I was like, oh, okay, sure, sure, sure. So I went up and I tapped Yemen on the shoulder. He's, he's the biggest guy on the boat. <laughs> and uh, he turns around and he's, you know, you can see, he's like, so uh, I heard that you lost your brother in a, in a motorcycle accident. And Yemen goes, what? Why would you bring this up to me? Why would you want to talk about my, my brother? And he got so angry and he got so upset and pissed. And I was like, dude, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm so sorry, man. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't mean to, to, you know, and I'm like, now I'm on the defensive. Right. And then Yemen looks like he wants to fight. I don't know what it's like here. And, and all of a sudden, <laughs> then within minutes, everyone was cracking up laughing. I thought it was the <laughs> cruelest fucking joke anyone had ever kind of pulled playing with that. But that kind of set the tone for my whole three months with these guys. Just like almost nothing was off limits in terms of humor and comedy. And I just fell in love with the Egyptians, like the culture and, and the people that wow. very first night. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, that is something very uh, classical Egyptian is this sense of humor. They're always laughing and they're always teasing you. <laughs> that's like, that's, they thrive off of teasing. And everywhere I went, people were offering me coffee. Everyone wanted to have tea or coffee with me. Okay. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Everywhere. I mean, strange. I could just be walking on the street. It didn't matter. Just, you know, older men sitting on their porch, just come, come. You know, always wanted to wave me. It was incredible. I really had an incredible experience in Egypt. That's great to hear. Yeah. And, you know, after 9-11 happened and I saw a lot of the anger and the vitriol, particularly among many in the West, not, not a lot, but some towards Muslims, including someone in my own family, it was incredibly hurtful to me having just spent this time with these amazing people. And, you know, I'm curious, Tark, beyond the obvious reasons that you had to do this film because, you know, look at the times, let's build bridges. Like beyond those two obvious reasons, why really make this film at this time? Why you? It, it's funny. A couple of things come to mind. So first of all, it's exactly what you just said. It's like for me, I identify myself as it's funny. I'm Egyptian. I'm also North American. Mm. Uh, I love, you know, North Americans, even though I'm Canadian, you know, we grew up on American television and we're, you know, road trips in America, you know, it, it feels like a North American community to me. So I feel so bonded with Americans and I have this love of Americans and also this love of Egyptians and, and Muslims. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, seeing two people you love fighting and saying all these bad things mm, about each other. Yeah. No, it's not true. You know, it's a misunderstanding, yeah. right? So it's just the common impulse to want to, hey, no, it's a misunderstanding. Right. 
Yes. You know, it's very childlike and a childlike yes. innocence of, of wanting to bring people together. And what's interesting is that I'm personally not a victim of racism at all. Like I don't get uh, any Islamic racism or Islamophobia or anything anti-Arab directed at me. I've been very lucky for the most part in Canada and Switzerland, etc. So it's not something where I feel, you know, I have to do it, but but I guess it's just this pain you feel when two people you love are not getting along yeah. and actually starting to hate each other and mm. say all this stuff, right? And that's, you know, that's what started it. And it started at the end of 2016. I'm just in Switzerland. I'm watching the news and I'm feeling like a lot of Americans felt this fear mm. of what's happening and the fear of these radical views and then that's when the kind of the idea came to me, because when you're afraid, you kind of close up, you mm -hmm. run away, don't engage. Then I was like, no, there's, there's got to be a different way. And then that's when the thought came and then the inspiration came. What if, you know, I did something kind for people who had those views, right? And then that's when it came, okay, let me go offer a free trip to Egypt as a form of kindness, as a form of, you know, let me take you on a trip. And then see what might unfold. Will we then connect at a human level? Will they meet Egyptians? What will happen? And, but it's all about my own inner process and facing my own inner fears, not educating, not telling people, hey, look how great Egypt is or any of that stuff. Yeah. No, it was just me saying, yeah, let me go to those people. Let me go to the Americans. And by doing that, as soon as I, I stepped foot on American soil and started talking to people, it shifted something inside me. Mm -hmm. And no matter how radical a view is, as soon as you're in front of the person, you can connect with their humanity and it softens you. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. And then that's what started renewing my faith in, in humanity and, and dissolving my fear. And, and I just felt a lot better. And, and that allowed us to find the Americans that wanted to journey with us and mm -hmm. the rest unfolded. Yeah, I really get that, man. My folks divorced when I was four years old, and it was not pleasant. And it's been acrimonious ever since. I'm 45. That was 41 years ago. And, and wow. so much of the work that I do today is really all around creating connection. And I didn't realize that I was so passionate about creating connection, often through the filter of intimate relationship, because the people I loved most, mom and dad, from the age of four and probably earlier, never connected were never connected. And the pain right. of that was so excruciating. Mm. And it has been, has continued to be. And it's a pain I've learned to live with and learn to sort of have compassion for. But I, I really appreciate your answer in that regard because it really is like the two people that I love, these two families, Egypt. And I think because I had that experience too, I have that, mm. that connection to the culture. I have, you know, an Egyptian brother essentially living with my dad in Nashville, Tennessee. And, wow. and he's just, again, ridiculous and funny. And for, Egyptians are like hobbits, man, in the sense that like they, when, when they befriend you, it's done for life. You don't escape the friendship. Right. Right. <laughs> There's no out. <laughs> yes yes and it's so beautiful it's so beautiful and it, i think that's something that actually the egyptian culture has to teach us in the so-called west mm. is that hospitality is that loyalty is that that community and i think that's what i experienced in egypt that i i so didn't even know i was longing for here mm. in the united states right and, and i'm i'm curious um what do you think that 
we'll just again say I, I don't want to say Arab culture because obviously there's that's that's massive and uh, gosh there is no what is Arab culture but Egyptian culture so it's we're in this kind of domain what do you think are one of or some of the the great gifts that Egyptian culture has to teach us in the West? I think I think definitely what you talked about is really uh, you know the the family the loyalty the friendship the hospitality that's definitely things that that I imagine. One other thing I would add to that, and I think you probably also experience this, is the um, is the contentment. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, you go on the street, and any time I take foreigners to Egypt or friends of mine or whatever, and you're you're walking on the street in the poorest area, there's still somehow a contentment, wow. yeah, a happiness for life, a gratitude for life uh, in the poorest of areas. Yeah, and every Egyptian you meet, they have such heavy, difficult lives yeah. compared to most people in the United States, although a lot of people in the United States also. And yet they're still somehow lighthearted and they're still laughing and joking and this and that. And, you know, so that's something really that I wish I had more of. I, well, I'm getting chills as you're saying it because I realize that how profound what you're sharing really is and how meaningful it is to me. Cause I, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I'm from the East Coast, but I live in LA, which is a world of great ambition. So everyone here wants to make it. They come here, especially to live their dreams. And I think just the American culture really or the Western culture cultivates that individualism, the success of the individual. And God, that has been so exhausting. And for me specifically, personally, and just there's, there's no end to it. It never ends. I'm never going to be successful enough. And I did experience that in Egypt. And at the time, again, I'm in my mid twenties. I'm a, you know, I'm, I've got a fire in my belly. I want, I want that success that I've been promised is, is possible for me. And, and I, I do recall walking in the streets and, and stepping into, you know, my friend, like he seemed like he had a million uncles and aunts and, and friends everywhere. And, and he, I think he did. And seeing how, yeah, there was just, I don't, the word ambition probably isn't the right word to use, but there was that contentment. There was, we're just living our lives in the same way that, that people have been living their lives for millennia. Right. And we're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's ra- radical. <laughs> you reminded me of another thing that's very different. Like uh, when I live in Switzerland, it's very possible to go days or weeks without any human interaction, mm-hmm. right? You can go to the, the grocery store mm-hmm. without eye contact or a single word. So you can actually be completely invisible sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice, right? Yeah. So you can get very isolated in Egypt. You cannot. <laughs> After five minutes, you have to engage in conversation. They will drag you in. Whatever you're doing, you somehow engage in it. And one of the things that I love when I land in Egypt is that I get into the taxi and all of a sudden he's like your long lost brother. You know, he'll treat you like as if you're your family and he'll ask you the most intimate of things and this and that and laugh and, and you feel this connection and it's wonderful. But then after, you know, two weeks and 100 long lost brothers, it's a little much. Yeah. So I'm really happy to go back to Switzerland. So. Uh, I know. Look, when I got there and I'm staying in this, uh, you know, what was essentially middle class Egyptian home and uh, what's that? What was that place? Hierapolis? That's not it. Um, Heliopolis. Heliopolis. That's where it was in the district of Egypt. And, uh, you know, it's a little two bedroom home basically for six people, which is middle class by that, at that time, by those standards, it was very comfortable. 
I remember I would go to sleep with essentially six Egyptians sitting on the edge of my bed, just watching me fall asleep. And I would wake up with six entirely different Egyptians sitting on my bed, waiting for me to wake up. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) My stepmother, who she was married to a Turkish man, and she's actually one of the big reasons that I went to Egypt. She has so many, she worked in Egypt a lot over the years, and she just has great, great deep connections to Egypt. And she would describe it as blackbirds on a fence. Okay. Just blackbirds on a fence, just sitting around watching you doing nothing, just waiting for something to happen. <laughs> like that was, was like going to Egypt. I loved it. And after a short period of time, it was like, give me some fucking space. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You got it. Right. But I, I, yeah, man, I had such a great time. And, and let's, so let's dive into your film a little bit. So again, I've prepped our listeners a little bit in the introduction, but I'd love just from your, uh, in your words, give us a quick synopsis of the film. Well, The synopsis, I guess, is really about me and a friend of mine going around the United States and talking to people and looking for people who are concerned about Egypt, the Middle East, Islam. And when we would find people who had that concern, we'd just invite them on a free trip to Egypt. And then we filmed their journey there and back, and we paired them up with Egyptians. And it was- How long did they stay with the- It was only 10 days. 10 days, okay. 10 days, it was very short. And, and the magic that happened was what really blew me away because mm-hmm. I couldn't have, have, have predicted from such a short period yeah. of time the connections and the depth of, of friendship that developed and, and people's lives were just radically changed. It was really yeah. beautiful. What I noted is that through the different uh, men, women, couples even that, that went on this trip, some, in my analysis, seem to really experience, I mean, again, no, we're not going to do any spoilers here, Thank you. but some had just radical transformation that was mind-blowing. I mean, there's a beautiful and, and heart-wrenching sort of transformative twist in the film that you don't see coming, and it's profound. And it seemed like a few others didn't experience that much. But then I did my social media snooping just in preparation for our conversation. And I came across some of the the cast of characters that I thought, well, he didn't really seem or she didn't, whatever. Again, no no spoilers. Didn't really seem to get the deep transformation that was on offer here. And I realized I was wrong, actually. Right. I Yeah. And, and this is the thing is that we've had a couple of people say, oh, they didn't even ask them about, uh, they didn't ask the Americans afterwards what their political and religious beliefs changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, that's exactly, we, we intentionally mm. didn't because yeah. the whole film was not about changing anybody, yeah. but it was about showing or exploring whether it's possible for such diverse people to have a connection, yeah. right? And that happened. And a lot of the, the, you know, you're referring to the same people everyone also refers to. And you see that this person's life had changed. Yeah. He's established a lot of connections that yeah. he wouldn't have before. Yeah. But he hasn't changed in terms of his religious and political views. That's and, right. And that's fine. And the thing is, is that I was trying to change him and make him more tolerant. And I realized I'm just as bad. I'm, you know, I'm preaching as well. So as soon as I let go of that, I discovered that a wonderful person there, right? So I was confronted with a lot of my own you know, intolerance. I, I think that's really invaluable. An invaluable gift of this film too is because it is, I think we, as humans, I, and I'll speak for myself, but I, 
I'm endlessly tempted to think that if I'm going to connect someone with someone, it means you have to think like me. Right. We have to think like each other. I need to pull you into my domain of thinking in order for us to, in order for me to feel safe, for me to feel connected. And you say, I think in your in uh, your bio video, your creator bio video, you, there's a few things actually, a few things that you say that I want to just mention. But you say that this isn't a time where we're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Right. Most of us don't even like that damn song to begin with. So that's not the song we're going to sing anyway, even if there was a song. <laughs> Some of us are going to want to sing it and others are going to want to sing something else. Right. And that's the point, right? right? But we don't have to want to sing the same song. We can still respect each other. We can still live with each other yeah. and not kill each other because we think and pray and worship differently. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's it's shocking because it's so simple, and it's the foundation also of this country, at least in in principle. When I say, I mean the United States specifically, we were supposed to be founded on religious freedom. Yeah, and clearly, you know, we're getting off track in a sense on that. And I'd actually, well, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because again, you straddle those two cultures so intimately, and. You know, what do you think that we really need to know in the West about living under a more authoritarian system of government where, for example, you're, you are actively discouraged from talking about what's really going on in the country, right? Where you're forbidden to criticize the government. I mean, this is happening around the world. It's happening right here in my country because, again, you, you, Egypt is a country, just the system of it, the government of it, it doesn't encourage a lot of diversity of thought in the way that at least the United States ostensibly does, less and less so. But you know, we're still free to make fun of our leader, thank God. Ironically, thank God. <laughs> but what do we really need to understand in your view, Tarek, about the dangers of allowing our leaders to become more dismissive of a free press and fair elections, for example? Well, there's a few things that come to mind. First of all, what really bothers me is when I mention, you know, Egypt and, you know, we got a lot of hate about, uh, you know, why are you taking people to Egypt and all that stuff, is that I think some Americans need to understand there's a difference between the, the system of government and the people, right? We, we know that. And to dismiss an entire country because... They might not be as have the the most evolved political economic system, mm-hmm. or let's say that they culturally they're lagging behind in in women's rights or other issues. It does not help to just dismiss them as human beings and say they're savages or they're this or they're that. Yeah, Egypt has a lot of challenges and problems, and their system in a lot of areas needs to be evolved. There's a lot of poverty and and they're not as literate etc and yeah you can complain there's no democracy there and you can say but that's a very different topic than when you're talking about egyptians themselves mm-hmm. right and i think it's really unfair the way we just dismiss whole countries and peoples just because their system is not perfect and it's a bit ironic because the united states also isn't perfect yeah and i think going back to america and what's happening here, I feel, I mean, I, was, I just landed in New York City at the beginning of last week with my son, and then we came to LA. We went on the tour of the United Nations, hmm. and it really reminded me of our history. 
And I think a lot of the American nationalism that's happening now with all the hate and vitriol and all the things, it's people who are forgetting American history. America was, after World War II, was a beacon of light. They're the ones who established the United Nations to have a vision of peace and harmony in the world, right? This is American culture, Mm -hmm. right? So, So I think it's really ironic that in the name of nationalism, people are erasing American history and identity, you know, the, the fact that yeah. it's a country of immigrants, yeah. it's, it's a country that values diversity and freedom and wants a world. Uh, I mean, look how they built up Germany, their enemy. After World War II, Germany was their enemy. And yet with the Marshall Plan, they really helped the Germans get back on their feet. And that wasn't, that was America first. That was, <laughs> right. that benefited right. America. Yeah. Right. So it's really a shame to see um, some of these changes in American culture in the name of America. I know. I know. Yeah. It, it strikes me as it's it is so easy to forget history and to forget where we really do come from and to forget you know in the three hundred plus years that we've been a, a country and it's always been a mess. I think that's the great delusion a lot of us are living right now is to think that there was a time when everything was really just working. It's always been a, a, it's an experiments are messy. Mm. And um, you said something in your creator bio video that I thought was just profound and I'm going to read it back to you. And I'd love to just hear you maybe expand on that a little bit or, or just kind of bring us into this more by what you really mean. But you said this whole process shows, I don't know anything really. I'm just kind of along for the ride. I don't know how to bring world peace, make people cooperate more, or create conflict. It's been radically clear. I don't really know what I'm doing, but somehow things are working out. I'm doing my best. And I don't think that there's a direct correlation between what I'm doing and the results of the film. So that really leapt out at me because, again, I think... You know, I love sort of uh, chaos theory and fractals. And I think what you just said, while I know you've spoken in the context of the film, I believe it applies to the evolution of a country. I believe it applies to just how we go through our lives. We don't know anything. We're along for a ride. We don't know how to, you know, this or that. And But share with me and our listeners, like, how did this film, like, just, just bring us into that a little bit more. I think there's just so much wisdom there. Well, yeah, I mean... First of all, I really think the state of I don't know is one of the best states because then that's the place of magic and yes. awe. Right? Yeah. And as soon as you think you know something, you kind of close up a lot of possibility. And the film was just, I really felt that it wasn't my idea, you know, that it didn't belong to me. I belong to the idea, mm. right? And, you know, I have no experience in film, zero, mm. right? I have, and yet... You know, I reached out to some really talented people and somehow people just kind of came on board and did things and I wanted to do this and this happened and all this stuff. So I didn't have this vision. Okay, how am I supposed to create a film that's going to make all these things happen? Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't. Yeah. But I know for sure what I did was really important to the film. Yeah. Right. 
so I did my part, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, and I somehow yeah. kind of fit in, yeah. but I, I didn't know, you know, you saw the film. I didn't script this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You were winging it, man. I could tell. No, I, I don't, I don't really mean that entirely, but I totally get what you You can't script it. I mean, you have no idea how these people are going to react. Who's going to say yes. Right. Right. None of it. And it was so mind blowing what happened. So I somehow just participated. And I think this is really my life. I, I, I don't have like grandiose goals or plans, but I have an intuition of where I should be going and I follow it to the best I can and things happen. Yeah. And there was a moment, you actually see this in the trailer too, where you're, you at least appear to be in despair. And it's the moment where I think you were attending some of the Trump rallies in the middle of the country and you and Adam Saleh have the, uh, the, the Make America Great hats on again, which I'm assuming was a strategic decision to – anyway, I could tell, you know, in some of the feedback that you were getting, man, it's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal when you're confronted with the ideas and the certainties. What was that moment of despair like for you? Well, it, you know, I really didn't expect the reactions when I'm offering just a free trip to Egypt. Right. Why does, why does that make people angry? Mm. Yeah. Right? I didn't expect people to get angry and hostile towards yeah. me yeah. for offering a free trip to Egypt. Right. And there was just moments along the way where there was just so much hostility and hate. Yeah. That I was like, oh my God, this is really worrying, right? So th- they were there. Those moments were there. And then every now and then there would be that magic moment of connection, right? So yeah. it, it, it was hard. But in the end, I just felt the more I just trusted. That's the point is that it's not like a, if I recruited 100 people and 10 people had a process. There was no process that worked. Yeah. Right. There was something. Eventually, these people found their way to me, mm-hmm. but I couldn't do it again. <laughs> you know, <I> just, <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been blogging for gosh, I guess over ten years now, and and one of the things that blogging has really taught me, and and I always write with the best of intentions to serve and to share my heart and to connect and to help people figure things out that I thought would have really helped me along the way, and and not be preachy and all that, and I still get hate mail. Right. You know, people are still still write to me. I'm actually one that's got me kind of riled up from just last night. Someone saying, you need to write differently because you're not speaking from my voice and you're not doing it the way that I know you need to do it because I've been sort of a, it's a victim that's become the abuser. Wow. And they're telling me how I need, and it's like, look, I've done this long enough to know I can't possibly do this in a way that is going to please everybody. Right. And not going to engender resistance and upset. And no one in history has ever done anything that everyone has loved. Right. I don't right. presume to be the first. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it's just kind of funny sometimes the pleasure people take in disliking what you're doing. Right. Rather than just, okay, just don't pay attention to it. Exactly. I mean, quite literally, I, we, our trailer got placed in, in one of these uh, independent film sites. Uh-huh. And um, there was quite a few likes. And then, and then one person puts a comment, I'm so happy I get to be the first dislike. Wow, it's amazing. <laughs> why? Why Why do you want to? Right. So I was really curious, like, why? I'm, I'm just curious. Like, why? Right. Being the first. No, and no, why being so happy, happy about, about it? Happy about it, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a fascinating anyway. thing. I want to finish with this last question, and then we'll actually finish up with the five key takeaways finale. So this is the billion-dollar question. What, Tarek, do you think is the biggest challenge facing men today? And what wisdom would you offer in the face of it? I, I think the biggest challenge is really um, fear and self-doubt. I think when I look into my, my personal journey, I think almost every decision or every motivation is either done because of to address a fear or self-doubt mm-hmm. or kind of a kindness or love Right. And I kind of oscillate between the two. And then it's funny because when you follow one of them, it feeds mm-hmm. more and, and you kind of go deeper. Yeah. And if you go the other way, you know, it, it, it feeds the, the other path. I think it's just becoming more aware of one's intention. And, and I think the more one can just simply um, feel the fear and just be the awareness of what a fear is and, and feel it and really go into it, the better. And that's what I've, that's my kind of personal process that I've been going through is my biggest challenge is to realize that when I'm in fear, when I'm making a decision out of fear, because I don't realize it. I just make the decision. Course, yeah. Right. I have to do it. <laughs> I have to. That's a good, that's a good indicator. I have to. <laughs> yeah. That, that, right. Yeah. So, and that's kind of been my, my process. And it's really interesting because I've noticed there's sometimes in my life where my whole existence is surrounding, is orbiting my need to defend my self-worth and prove myself and, and all this stuff. And, and I, I can go weeks and, and months and every phone call I make is so I don't feel lonely or, you know, that I'm, I have friends and, and, and all that stuff. And I sometimes get in those phases and then I realize then, you know, sometimes I can get out of those phases and then I'm just at peace and I don't have to do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm just content. And then the phone calls I make are just to share my joy and to share this and this and that. And I think it's really interesting. I think there's a place where we act as center Mm -hmm. and the center can sometimes be that fear and that proving and the center can be just the heart and simplicity where nothing has to happen. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up with the five key takeaways finale. And I know we're running a little tight on time, so we'll try to just rock out on these. And these are intended to give our listeners some very just sort of uh, some of these things you may have already talked into. But again, the intention is just to give our listeners something sort of that they can hook onto, something they can even kind of work with right after they are finished listening. So key takeaway number one is the key insight. What's the one key insight that you would offer listeners that you believe can make a meaningful impact on their lives because it has in yours? Trusting hope, right? That, you know, again, moving away from fear, trust hope, be present. My insight is most of the things we're afraid of are not really there, Mm -hmm. right? We're usually kind of safe, um, and there might be like, you know, 99% is the big story that had happened or will happen, right. but it's not there. 
So I think the key insight is where is this fear? I remember I read a couple of years ago that in this country, you're more likely to be killed by a TV falling on your head than a terrorist attack. Right. And I actually completely believe that to be true because when I was a kid, my sister had a TV fall on her head. She survived, oh my God. but she actually, the TV fell on her face. She was kind of on the floor and kind of pulled the TV. You know, she was like, her body was under the bench that the TV was on, kept inching wow. it closer, and then bam, it was on her head. I've seen that happen. I have never seen or known anyone who was affected directly by a terrorist attack. Right. So I can bear that statistic out to be true. So like you said, <laughs> the vast majority of what we're afraid of it ain't something to be afraid of. Thank you. Number two, key mentor. Name another man that you've been inspired by, living or dead, that you would recommend our listeners to learn more about. Um, I'm, I've taken a lot of inspiration from the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a lot of what he says. I remember there was a question to him about uh, why, you know, how do you deal with negative thoughts? And I just loved it. It was a teenager asking him, and he just said two things. It's making something really real, more real than it really is, and giving too much importance mm. to yourself. Mm. And that was like, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And again, if you're listening, if you're driving or you're at the gym or you can't write any of this down, don't worry. It's all going to be in the show notes at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. Number three, key resource, your most, we're just going to go with your movie. I was going to say your most impactful, inspiring book, movie, or podcast of the last year, but I, I want to just really promote and push your film. Okay. If there's something else you want to share, but I say go see this movie. It's just so interesting and entertaining and, and, and heart-wrenching in and, and, and a good way. Thank you. So I hope you don't mind that I answered that question for you. Great, great answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Number four, key investment in the last year. What's the best thing that you spent money on under $10,000? Part of the movie. Ah, Which part? Yeah, I was, as I read the question, I was like, the movie. movie, But then that's a little bit more than 10,000. So I think for me, any gift that you give somebody, it's moving. I mean, one of the things about the film, one of the characters, Brian came to me, you know, off camera and he's like, no one's ever done such a nice thing for me. Mm. And we were on the Red Sea where you've been. And he said, you know what? I've had such a hard year and I've never had anything like this. And that's just beautiful, right? Mm. So just, Mm -hmm. you know, I would invest in helping someone spend money on somebody, you know, you don't know. That makes, I mean, you've impacted his overall life experience. In that gift, I really get the magnificence of that, you know, in, in something giving him something so beautiful that he would never otherwise have experienced. So I really get that. And, and that gratitude is just, it, there's nothing sweeter than yeah. that. Beautiful. Last one key practice. Please offer one consistent practice, spiritual, creative, personal, relational, that has served you well and that you challenge the men or, or women for that matter, we have a lot of women listening, to take on for the next seven days? Um, I think for me, just a very simple practice, lying down on the couch, breathing, and really just feeling my whole body 
right? And just going where that takes me, you know, because a lot of times the fear and emotions that are in our heads are actually in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's the fear of not wanting to feel it and the fear of thinking it's going to overwhelm us and, you know, never go away that keeps us from doing that. And it's sometimes as simple as just lying on the couch and just feeling that pain and going with it. And then it's just so transformational. Yeah. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes at a timer. Yeah. Even, yeah. 10 minutes for me, just something very gentle. I'm the type of person that I try to give myself little, little goals. Otherwise. uh, Totally. Yeah. I call it, put a container around it so that your mind knows, okay, this isn't going to last forever. I can just 10 minutes. I'm in and out. (laughs) exactly that's what i do and then and then as soon as i'm on the cushion or something then it lasts longer but the commitment is always right yeah yeah yeah. okay beautiful and actually before we also finish up i want to just acknowledge your pledge to listen campaign tell us about that real quick yeah that i mean that was the whole point is that when we saw all these diverse people being able to live together without killing each other it inspired the pledge to listen movement and we realized on the trip it was just through listening with respect that we were able to, to come together. And that's what I noticed across the country in the United States. Everyone shares that left to right, that, you know, I just want to talk and mm-hmm. I just want to listen. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why we started the Pledge to Listen, to join all the people who wanted to see more listening and kindness in the world. Yeah. And I'll tell you, again, as a, a lot of my work is relationship coaching and, and in a lot of these, even these podcast interviews, when we talk about intimate relationship, that's often the number one practice that all my guests recommend. And when I ask that, you know, as a, what do men need to know about, you know, doing intimate relationship? Well, so often it's just fucking listen, right. learn to listen right, really, really deeply. And so I love that that's a core element of your your movie in this project is the invitation to listen. Right. Yeah. And you can find that on the website, more about that campaign, how to share it, how to participate. And finally, again, the, the website is free trip to Egypt.com. Beautiful. Tarek, this has been a real pleasure and an honor for me to speak to another Egyptian brother. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a real honor for me. I really enjoyed meeting you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for coming on Men This Way. And, and have fun, man. Here it comes. It's, uh, here comes the tsunami, whatever it looks like. There you go. I'm ready. <laughs> Enjoy. Okay, my friend. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Tarek Munib. Find Tarek's movie at freetriptoegypt.com. Of course, all links and resources, as always, as well as Tarek's five key takeaways, will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com. That's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. If you were served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or just write a review on your podcast app so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. If you'd like to share any feedback or insights or just let me know what this inspired in you, please feel free to reach out to me at brianreeves.com. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.